Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Chris Terracone. Season 8 of Jury Duty explores the trial of Alex Murdoch, a member of one of the most powerful families in South Carolina, who is accused of murdering his son Paul and his wife Maggie, with the purpose of covering up a multitude of alleged crimes including fraud and homicide. In our last episode, we concluded our look at the direct examination of FBI Special Agent Matthew Wilde, a cell phone data analyst, as he described the information maps from his digital forensics report. In this installment, we conclude our review of the testimony of Agent Wilde, and begin our look at the testimony of Nathan Tootin, a close friend of Paul Murdoch, who is a law enforcement officer for the Walterboro, South Carolina Police Department. That's all coming up, right after the break. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It is the afternoon of February 10th, 2023, day 13 of the trial of Alex Murdoch. As we concluded our last episode, Prosecutor John Conrad concluded his direct examination of FBI Special Agent Matthew Wilde. In the final moments of this questioning, Agent Wilde, using data maps as visual aids, described for the jury the approximate locations of Alex Murdoch's phone in the days following the murders. As we begin this installment, defense attorney Philip Barber begins his cross-examination of Mr. Wilde. Good afternoon, Agent Wilde. Good afternoon, sir. Um, I don't think I'll have many questions. You know, this won't take long at all. Um, we were looking at a lot of maps, and they had a lot of timestamps, and I think they're referred to as pings sometimes. They're not. They're not pings. So uh, what are they? They're activations on the record. So whether they be um, incoming or outgoing phone calls, or those RTT activations, which are uh, slightly different, um, or the other things with Paul's phone, those are like the iPhone location data uh, records. But but we're looking at calls, text messages. Would a text message always um, make one of those timestamps? Now, so on Verizon, um, which all the phones in this case were. With Verizon, we're not going to get uh, call detail record. We're not going to get location data with the text messages, just the way they're designed. Okay. I just wanted to be clear when we said that there weren't more calls coming into Maggie Murdoch after 7, that there were some text messages, but wouldn't. if there were, they wouldn't show up. Correct. They wouldn't show up in her call detail records with cell tower information. What would it look like on these maps if a call – well, let me ask this. Do calls hand off between towers while they're still going on? They do. And what would that look like on these maps? So it, was, it would look the same way it looks now. So, again, when the call, before the call is even set up, so if my phone was on in this room right now, my phone is constantly scanning the environment. It's trying to find the tower and sector with the strongest signal. Okay, it's very much like sitting at the airport trying to find the best Wi-Fi to connect. Um, so what happens when a call hands off between, uh, tower, between towers during a call is uh, the records look like they look. Uh, it's still going to show the initial tower and sector that the phone saw is the best tower and sector at the time the call occurred. And then after that, let's say the call is an hour long and I drive from here to Columbia, 
you know, I'm going to hand off tower to tower to tower, but on Verizon, I'm not going to see that handoff in the records. Right, and that, that, I guess, was my question, is you're just going to see that first tower. So if you're handed off, like, tower one to two to three, you're not going to see on the same calls hits on towers two and three on this map. Correct. You're only going to see the, the initial. And do the coverage areas intentionally overlap to some degree to allow for handoffs? Yes. We saw um, GPS data for Paul Murdoch's phone. Yes. Um, did you have any GPS data for Maggie Murdoch's phone? I did not. There was uh, nothing in the location database for uh, for the time period that was in question. Do you know why that was? I, it's either uh, something Paul was running on his phone that generated it or a lack of something that Maggie wasn't running on her phone that did not generate it. I really don't know the answer. To that. I mean, so the answer would be that you don't know. I don't know. Yes. And what about uh, Al uh, Murdoch's phone? Um, there was nothing during the time period. So you mentioned that you test, you've testified as an expert in, I think, over 100 cases? Yes, sir. And, and some of those other cases, were you able to show phones moving together? Sometimes we are, yes. Were you able to do that in this case? I did not do that in this case. When you were doing the, the drive around um, to create that sort of coverage map, did you go onto the, the Moselle property? I did. Uh, was that with the consent of Alec Murdoch? Yes, it was. Could we pull up um, slide 35? Philip Barber directs Agent Wilde's attention to the monitor. Can you see the, the screen? I can. And I think the previous testimony was that this 10631 call was the 911 call? Yes. Um, I just want to ask about that timestamp because um, we, we heard from someone from the FBI yesterday the 911 call was actually placed at 1006 and 18 seconds. So what would account for the 13 seconds difference between the two? I guess it depends on the records you were looking at. It'd be a, it, there might be a slight offset between the records the other person was looking at and the records I was looking at. And the 911 call center, of course, would have a timestamp on incoming calls. Correct. Right. Have you ever seen cases where there's a few seconds difference between those timestamps and this kind of records and what the 911 center might have? Yes, sir. I mean, there's a, there's a difference between the when you press the green button and it usually takes a couple of seconds to connect on the other side. And could we on the Elmo go to slide 56? And the reason I, I would like to do this on the Elmo is I think that the presentation was cutting off the bottom of the screen. It was. And this, can we see the top so we can kind of get context for what this is? So this was Alec Murdoch information, and this was on June 15, 2021, correct? Yes, sir. And do you know that was Tuesday? I, I don't. Can we scroll in so we can see the bottom? It says that activity after 2.33 p.m. indicates travel to Somerville. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Okay. Um, do you have any data after that? Is that the end of the data that you have regarding Alec Murdoch? Yeah, there was other data after that. And do you have location data for Alec Murdoch after June 15? I think so. I think in I this report? Not in this report. So in this report, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry because that's yep. you know, what we're looking at here. Yes, sir. Because um, I understand, of course, you have cell phone records. He kept using the cell phone, obviously, after the 15. Yes, he did. But for what's being presented to the jury, the last entry is, uh, I'll represent, you know, Tuesday, June 15, is the, the end of what you have. Yes, it is. And he's going to Somerville. Yes, sir. And finally, um, there are uh, last two or three slides. We don't need to show them. There was some information for some other people, a CD, CB row, uh, uh, a Marty Cook? Yes, sir. Why did you have 
Why were you looking at information for them? I was requested to look at the information for them for the night of the incident. Were you requested to ever look at information for an Eddie Smith or a Spencer Roberts? Eddie Smith sounds from, uh, sounds uh, sounds familiar, uh, but I'm not sure about Spencer Roberts. According to prosecutors, there is evidence that Spencer Roberts received several unexplained check payments from Alex Murdoch, and that search warrants tied to those payments yielded illegal drugs, a trove of cash, and a handgun. Curtis Eddie Smith is a cousin of Alex Murdoch's who did odd jobs for the defendant. He currently awaits trial on charges of fraud and money laundering related to his activities with Murdoch. Did you look at information regarding uh, Eddie Smith? Yes. Do you have that information with you? I do not. You do not have the information? I don't have it with me, no. Um, no further questions, Your Honor. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Prosecutor John Conrad rises for a brief redirect examination of Agent Wild. Agent Wild, you were asked by Mr. Barber. Uh, whether you've been able to pinpoint two phones together in other cases, correct? Yes. Generally speaking, what kind of data are you using when you try to have been able to pinpoint two phones together at the same time? I mean, first of all, the two phones have to have activity around the same time. So we'd have to have calls at 9 o'clock on one phone and calls at 8.58, 9 o'clock on the next phone. That's the first thing we'd have to do. Second thing is uh, it has to be indication the phones are traveling together or stationary at the same place at the same time. Okay. Uh, and after 7.50 p.m., was there any Verizon location power information provided uh, by Verizon? There was not on uh, Maggie Murdoch's phone. There was not. So you wouldn't be able to provide any opinion as to whether her phone was near any other phone in the world after 7.50 p.m., correct? That's correct, because there's no data to compare it against. Okay. That's perfect. No further questions, Your Honor. With that, Matthew Wilde steps down from the witness stand. The state next calls Nathan Tootin, a law enforcement officer for the Walterboro, South Carolina Police Department. Mr. Tootin is in his mid-twenties. He sports short brown hair and wears a gray suit, a white shirt, and a burgundy pattern tie. Prosecutor David Fernandez handles the questioning for the state. He begins by asking the witness for some biographical information. Mr. Tootin grew up in Hampton, South Carolina and graduated from the University of South Carolina in 2021 with a degree in criminal justice. Fernandez next asks Mr. Tootin about his work history. And what do you currently do for a living? I'm law enforcement officer. Okay, with what organization? Waterboro Police Department. All right. And uh, describe your job responsibilities. What do you do as a Walterboro police officer? I enforce the laws of the state and serve and protect. You work in road patrol right now? Yes, sir. Okay. All right. Um, Nathan, growing up in this area, were you, uh, were you childhood friends with, with Paul Murdoch? That's correct. <clears throat> When's the first time you, you met Paul? Lifelong friends, very young age. Growing up in Hampton, knew him, knew him as a kid? That's correct. Okay. 
All right, well, tell us a little bit about um, Paul. What do you remember about him? Tell us the kind of guy he was. Paul was the definition of a good person and a good friend. He was very loyal, salt-of-the-earth kind of guy, and would do anything for you at any given moment, no matter the time. What were kind of things that Paul, you all like to do together? We like to hunt, fish, really just hang out with friends. Was Paul the kind of guy, the kind of friend that you'd, you'd kind of call a reliable friend? Absolutely. All right. Was he the one that was he the kind of kid that would be there for you if you needed help with anything? Absolutely. Did you spend a lot of time together with Paul through the years? I did. Yes. Did Paul have a cell phone? Yes. Did he like to use his cell phone? Yes. How would you describe it? He was on his phone all the time. In addition to being on his phone all the time, was he the kind of guy that if you needed something or reached out to him, he was going to respond back to you? That's correct. Was he going to call you back if you called him if he missed the phone call? Yes. And would you expect him to pick up if you called him? Yes. Did you get to know uh, Maggie also? I did. All right, tell us a little bit about her. Uh, Maggie was probably one of the sweetest ladies I've ever met in my life. She always looked out for Paul's friends and was the second mom to me. Alex Murdoch nods his head back and forth in an apparent demonstration of emotion as Prosecutor Fernandez continues his questioning. And uh, having spent a lot of time with Paul, you, did you also spend a lot of time with Maggie? That's correct. Did you also get to know Alex? I did. Dad? And is Alex here today? Uh, yes, she is. Can you tell me what he's, where he is? Uh, he's sitting at that table wearing the blue jacket. Mr. Tootin points to Alex Murdoch. And uh, did you get to know him very well? I did. Through the years. Did you know the family before they moved their primary residence out to the what we call Moselle? Did you know them before then? I did. Okay. Were you there when they moved or obtained Moselle and, and started using that as a uh, as a residence? I was. When Moselle was first uh, constructed, how many entrances and exits were there? I just one. And which one was that? That was uh, the one by the cabin or one that leads to the sheds. And the sheds mean the, is that the dog kennels in the hangar area? That's correct. And the cabin, I think you referred to, is there a cabin on the so, at the front of that entrance? That's correct. Okay. Who put the mailbox in there? I believe Miss Maggie. And tell us about that cabin. Tell us the, where it's situated and, and why you know so much about it. Um, my freshman year of college, Paul and I actually lived together at the cabin. So yeah. it's, like a, it's like a small house, basically? That's correct. And, uh, and where is it situated uh, in regards to the hangar area? Um, a little bit closer to the highway. How many feet or how many? How far away? 100 yards, maybe. And so you lived there, I think you said, for the, for the summer? It's just a semester. A semester? Mm-hmm. All right. What was, uh, how would you describe uh, yours and Paul's friendship? How, would you, how often would you guys communicate a day? Just about every day. Every day, every, every other day. Phone calls? That's correct. And texts? Primarily phone calls. And later in life, did Paul go to school? He did. Where did he go? USC. And that's located where? Columbia. And uh, did you uh, did you see him whenever he would come back into town? I would. Would he come back frequently? No, sir. At the college level? At the college years? No, sir. When would you see him? Would you see him in the summers when school was out? Good bit. All right. And I think you mentioned before you all did a lot of fishing and a lot of hunting. Are you familiar with firearms in general? I would say so. Did you? Did Paul have any guns that he favored? Ones that he kept on him and and kept with him most of the time. He did. All right. Well, tell us a little bit about you know however you want to describe those two. Guns. The two guns that were with us, uh, 
most of the time was a black 300 blackout and a camouflage 12 gauge Super Black Eagle 3. And the black 300 blackout, what, what was that firearm used for primarily? Anything. Did you, did you use it for hunting? I did. Okay. Uh, what would you hunt with that gun? Anything. <laughs> did it have the scope? I think you said there's a scope on the top or some sort of uh, sight. What, what, how would you describe that? As thermal scope. Meaning you could see heat? That's correct. Okay. And uh, describe the Benelli shotgun that you, you just uh, mentioned also. What did, it, what did it look like and how, how did you know it was Paul's? It had a very distinct digital camouflage pattern. And um, he had a gun strap that he, he's used since I've known him. That that's what stayed on that shotgun. Do you know the differences between? So we hear you know Benelli Super Black Eagle models, and I think we've heard three and two and one. Do you know the differences between the various models? I do. Okay. So when you look at it, they have distinctive features on them that would tell you whether it's a three or a two or a one. Very subtle differences, but yes. But you feel comfortable that you know the difference? Mm hmm. Yes, sir. Sorry. I'm show you what's been marked as, or sorry, to enter evidence as State's Exhibit 88. Mission to personal witness. Nathan, I'm handing you what's been marked and entered into evidence as State's Exhibit 88. You feel comfortable taking this for a second and now telling me if you know what it is? I do. Okay. There you go. Be, be aware of the muzzle. Prosecutor Fernandez hands Mr. Tootin the first of three firearms. This is Paul's rifle. And you know that because you've used this a, a bunch of times? That's correct. I'll also now show you what's entered into evidence as State's Exhibit Number 4. This is State's Exhibit 4. Do you feel comfortable taking a look at this for me for a second and let me know if you know which firearm this is? I do. Right. No, the safety's off. Mr. Tootin takes the second of the three firearms. This is Paul's shotgun. How do you know? I've used it several times in this thing camouflage pattern along with Paul's gun strap. This strap in particular is Paul's? That's correct. How do you know this is a Model 3 Benelli Superbike Eagle? Well, would you let me explain? Absolutely. So there are a few subtle differences. One being the forearm grip. The Superbike Eagle 3 has a slight flare or increase in curve. Another difference would be the trigger magazine port has an indention that allows you to insert shot, shot shells easier. The Super Black Eagle 2 and previous models don't have that. Um, another difference would be the button that releases the bolt, which makes the weapon operable. The uh, previous models, being the original and number two, are circular, whereas this one is more rectangular. I mean, the easiest way to tell the difference is they're labeled two and three. Thank you. Show you now what's been entered into evidence as States Exhibit 91. You feel comfortable? Handling this gun for a second, let me know if you recognize what it is. I do. Recognize what this gun is? Mr. Tootin takes the third firearm. I recognize that as Buster Murdoch shotgun. Okay. What model is this? Super Black Eagle 2. And you know it's a 2 because of the other features you just mentioned and pointed out for the jury? That's correct. Did you do that again? Tell us why you know that's a 2. Like I mentioned earlier, the slight flare on the 3. This one is straighter and more narrow. Does not have the indention for the uh, magazine port and the butt circular. And you said it was Buster shotgun. How do you know that? Um, the Mojo sticker on the barrel. The sticker at the top of the barrel there? 
That's correct. Familiar with it, Mojo. That's correct. Did Alex have a gun that he favored, a shotgun? He did. What was one that he favored? That was a Super Black Eagle original black shotgun. Are you familiar? Did Paul have a 300 blackout rifle prior to the black one you just identified? That's correct. All right. Were you familiar with what happened to that firearm, the original one? I am. All right. Tell us the story. Um, it was a party, and he had it was a there's a black 300 blackout and a tan 300 blackout. He had the tan one and. It got stolen from a party one night. It was stolen from a party one night. You know what year that was, approximate year? I'd say early 2018. And that was the, the our farm that was stolen was what color again? A tan. Tan. All right, at what point uh, in the Mazelle property was the, uh, what year, approximate year, was the second entrance um, created, that one with the brick, uh, brickwork? I'm not sure. Was it, it was a few years, though, after the, they'd, they'd owned the property, the family had owned the property? That's correct. Was it common to use either entrance by the family to, to leave and, and enter the property? Yes and no. All right, we'll explain. Um, Paul and I would use, and friends would use the entrance by the sheds more, whereas uh, Alec and Mackie would use the main gate entrance more. If you all, and let me ask you, what was going, what were the, before we get to my next question, what the, uh, the hangar area with the kennels, are you familiar with it? That's correct. Did you describe to the jury just the very basic layout of, of that area? Um, it was kennels as you were riding into the driveway, the kennels would be on your left, the shed or hangar would be directly on your right. Um, there was a, another shed that they had built in front of the hangar, and there was a skinning shed for animals out back to the right and would you spend a lot of time down at the uh, hangar area and kennel area we would why would you all hang out there why was that the kind of the collection place it's just a central location where everything was located tools correct and fire uh, farm equipment correct if you all were spending time down at the kennels and someone was leaving the house would it be common for them that someone, whether it's, you know, Alex or Maggie, to stop by on their way out, leaving the property? Yes, sir. That would be what would normally happen? Yes, sir. With that, we conclude this episode of Jury Duty. Please join us on our next installment as we conclude our look at Nathan Tootin's testimony and day 13 of the trial of Alex Murdoch. Also, check out the Crime Story Podcast Night Raid wherever you get your podcasts. And if you would like to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You can find more information about this trial on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created and produced by Carrie Antholis. 
It was co-produced, written, and edited by yours truly, Chris Terracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Trial Audio is courtesy of Law and Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty.